Well, it's a delight to be back with you all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Robbie Griggs. I was on pastoral staff here for about 10 years. I teach theology at Covenant Seminary. Clay Smith is one of my dearest friends in the world, so it was a delight for me when he asked me if I'd be willing to preach while he was on sabbatical to come and preach. And so really happy about that. One thing, uh, just to get this out of the way, that I'm less excited about is when we were talking about the topics, he said, you know, Sarah would be a good one, and then Rahab. And I'm like, sure, yeah, I can do those. And um, the story of Rahab is a difficult one. It's a challenging one. Um, So I want to say this morning, as we continue our uh, series on living by faith, uh, this is going to be one of those sermons that's tough. I just want to say that. It's, it's about divine judgment. It's about divine justice. It's about divine wrath. Difficult topics, challenging topics to think about. And so as we um, read the scriptures and seek the Lord's guidance Um, I'm grateful that uh, the elders and pastors will be able to clean up whatever messes I leave (laughs) behind this morning. Look with me in your bulletins or in your Bible from Hebrews 11, starting in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes and soften our hearts that we might receive from your word a clear sense of your justice and mercy in Jesus Christ and for his sake we pray, amen. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of some difficult situation and wondered, why am I still doing this? I had that thought in the fall of my junior year of high school. I had played football every year from the fourth grade until that point. It was a Friday night and I was standing on the sidelines with my teammates in Jackson, Missouri. And I thought, why am I still doing this? I was the starting center on the team. I did the snapping for punts, field goals, and extra points. I was the second string weak side outside linebacker, but I wasn't playing that night. Three weeks earlier at practice, we were doing a sideline tackling drill. I was matched up against our starting quarterback, whose name is Frentress Williams, who had just committed to playing D1 basketball. I was six feet tall, 160 pounds in pads, and a very average athlete. Frentress was six feet two, 195 pounds without pads, and a superb athlete. He was 10 yards directly in front of me, and the way this drill was set up is there was a cone about eight yards to the left, halfway between us, and he was supposed to carry the ball and run to the cone with the ball in his outside arm, and I was supposed to get to the outside, 
put my helmet, my face mask on the ball and turn him back in because the goal in a sideline tackling drill is to use the boundary and slow the man down so that you get support from the inside. Well, I knew that if I didn't go as hard as I possibly could, that I had no chance of tackling him. So when the whistle blew, I was off. And in that first split second, it seemed to me that maybe he was going about 85%. And so I thought I might have a chance of tackling him. But as we reached the cone, he at the very last second, as I'm going in to put my helmet on the ball, lowered his shoulder and his helmet. And we hit helmet to helmet right at the cone. The next thing I remember about 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds later, lying on the ground, listening to the coach complain about how every time there was a good hit, we players were always acting like we were hurt. I had knocked myself out in the collision. My teammates told me later that he actually fumbled the ball and that it was a good hit. Um, I didn't know. I started vomiting about an hour later. I was in the hospital for a couple days. And so three weeks later, I was standing on the sidelines at the game wondering, why am I still doing this? Sometimes it makes sense to quit because the thing you're committed to is not good for you or because the people you are committed to do not deserve your loyalty. This morning, we're going to be looking at the faith of Rahab, and we're going to be considering why her faith in the God of Israel led her to quit the people of Jericho. And we're also going to be thinking about why living by faith in Rahab's God sometimes might require us to ask the question, why am I still doing this? But back into the difficulties of Rahab's story. I mean, the, I'm going to ask three different questions this morning. And the first one is this, was betraying Jericho justified? I don't know if you've ever, if you read the story, it's kind of strange, right? Because as you're going through the story, um, she just gives everybody over. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's a bit odd, but before we get into that, we have to go through the outlines of this, the outline of the story so you can remember what happened. Moses has died. Joshua is about to lead the people into the promised land, and he sends two spies ahead to Jericho to survey the situation. They end up staying at Rahab's house. Now, this makes sense because Rahab is a prostitute, and the activities of her home would provide reasonable cover for travelers. Um, in the ancient world, you don't want to pay too much attention to who's going in and out of a house like that because some things are left best unknown. But the spies are recognized, the king of Jericho is notified, and he sends officials to Rahab asking her to hand over the spies. She immediately betrays Jericho by hiding the spies on her roof and sending the officials on a wild goose chase outside of the city walls. Now, if you think about the rest of the story, Jericho 
is destroyed. And we might wonder if Rahab's betrayal of the city is justified. I mean, wouldn't we expect her to stay loyal to the people of her city? And also, if we're thinking about the Bible, uh, betrayal is not high up on the list of virtues that you're going to find in biblical morality. So why might these things be different in this case? Well, the first interesting thing to note here is that Rahab is seen in an almost entirely positive life, both in the narrative of Joshua and in our passage in Hebrews. Yes, both texts remark on the fact that she was a prostitute, yet despite that fact, the, despite the fact that the Bible views prostitution in universally negative light, this doesn't count against Rahab. On the contrary, she is an exemplary figure. She is someone who is worthy of our esteem and emulation. How is that? Well, I think there are a number of things implied in Rahab's story that put her prostitution in a different light. In Joshua 2, verses 12 and 13, she says this, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Despite the fact that Rahab is a prostitute, her relationships with her family members are intact. This suggests most likely that either her extended family is destitute, very poor, and thus unable to support Rahab, in finding a suitable marriage relationship, or that her a family is oppressed in some more fundamental sense by the people of Jericho, or both. In either case, the impression that the narrative gives is not of a woman who has chosen a life of prostitution, but of a city in which a woman might get trapped in prostitution, despite having strong bonds with her family. In other words, Jericho is not a flourishing city with wise rulers. The king foolishly thinks he can simply send for the spies and end the threat. And despite what the whole city knows, only a prostitute is wise enough to see the implications and act accordingly. There are several common biblical themes in Rahab's story that I think are worth reflecting on here. The first is that God does not traffic in the kind of black and white individualistic moral evaluations that are so common in our culture. Yes, Rahab is a prostitute, but there is obviously more to her than that. And given that God was sending Joshua and his armies to wipe out Jericho for their idolatry and wickedness, the weight of divine judgment lies not primarily with Rahab, but with the society that makes a tragic situation like Rahab's possible. The author of Hebrews puts the point explicitly in our passage. 
Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient. This is a topic we see over and over again in the Bible. God evaluates communities not according to how well the strong are doing, but on whether or not the weak have a place and an opportunity to flourish as persons made in God's image. As James puts it in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When God the Father looks at us, he wants to see both purity from godlessness and care for the weak in our community. What do we see when we see the moral failings of the weak in our society? Are they merely inferior individuals worthy of our contempt? Or do we see people who are subject to the same kind of temptations and injustices as we are and who need our help? The Apostle Paul himself puts it this way in Galatians 6.1. How does Paul define what it means to be a spiritual person? Well, he tells you right there. For those Greek nerds out there, he uses this phrase, hoi pneumatikoi, in other words, the spiritual ones. And what does he say defines spiritual people? He says, the spiritual ones in the church are those who restore those caught in transgression in a spirit of gentleness. Far from being superior, these spiritual ones are humble because Paul reminds them that they must keep watch on themselves lest they too be tempted. So the Bible doesn't simply see Rahab the prostitute. No, it sees Rahab the wise Gentile who believes in the God of Israel. This is another theme we see over and over again in the Bible. Godly wisdom comes from humanly unexpected places. When societies or churches or families are falling apart because the proud and the strong are in rebellion against God, God chooses the weak and insignificant as his messengers of repentance and salvation. And if the strong will not listen, these messengers become harbingers of judgment. Paul states the principle succinctly in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The fundamental question then that Rahab's story poses to us is simple but profound. Are we as wise as this Gentile prostitute. Do we see as 
she sees? Or do we judge by appearances or status or reputation and thereby refuse to hear godly wisdom from an unexpected source? Are we the kind of community that is used to heeding the strong and ignoring the weak? Rahab's decision to quit Jericho was not the betrayal of a city and a people who deserved her loyalty. No, she quit a place and a people that had already quit her. Quitting Jericho for Rahab was leaving behind a people who had failed to protect her and give her a place to flourish. She quit a society that had exploited her vulnerability in order to use her body. But there's more to it than this. Rahab doesn't just flee a wicked people, she turns to the God of Israel. How does she describe why she betrayed Jericho? She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And in the Hebrew here, it's uh, not Adonai, it's the Lord's personal name. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Now, we're not used to connecting military victories with religious controversies, but it was customary in the ancient Near East to view battles between peoples as battles between their gods. So Rahab naturally connects Israel's victory over Egypt in the Exodus and then their subsequent victories, victories over the Amorite kings as evidence that Yahweh has given the land to Israel. And apparently everyone else around her has made the same connection because in Rahab's view, all the inhabitants of the land are melting away in fear before the Israelites. But again, there's more to it than this. Rahab has heard the specifics of the Exodus and she has heard the religious explanation the theological explanation that makes sense of those specifics, and she has come to adopt that view of things for herself. She says in the Exodus, the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before the Israelites. And that means that as Rahab puts it, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Whatever gods there are in the heavens of all the peoples, he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And that means that if he has given the land, then we will surely lose. What that means is that Rahab has put her trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that it was by faith that Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient. Now, if you're reading the story, 
It's not just how do we make sense of the betrayal. It's not just how do we make sense of um, the fact that she's a prostitute. It's more fundamentally, how do we make sense of the judgment that is coming to Jericho? I wonder what you make of Jericho. The book of Joshua is difficult for us in part because the conquest narrative and the judgment it depicts is so severe. And yet there are times when severe justice makes sense to us. I thought of such justice this week in response to a photo that I saw out of Ukraine. Maybe you saw it. There was a slender man with a shaved head kneeling in the street, holding the hand of a 13-year-old boy. The boy was covered by a tarp because he and three other people had been killed at a bus stop in the city of Kharkiv. The man was the boy's father. He had been kneeling, holding the boy's hand, saying prayers over him for two hours when the photo was taken. My youngest son, George, turned 13 last Saturday. I tried to imagine what it might be like to be the Ukrainian man, but I could not. I could not imagine a world where I was the one kneeling and praying. But this is the world you and I live in. It is a world where atrocities like this are not the exception. They are the norm. It is a world that is worthy of the severest judgment. Several weeks ago, we had a guest preacher at Riverside where my family and I go to church, and he was talking a little bit about the situation in Ukraine, and he said this. He said, we should pray that the Lord grants Vladimir Putin repentance, and if not, that he takes his life. I believe that is exactly right. What happens when we live by faith in Rahab's God? Well, Rahab and her family were spared from this severe justice of God because Rahab came to believe in Yahweh, the one who is God in heaven and on earth. But the scriptures give us more of Rahab's story than this. Not a lot more, but it's significant. We know from Matthew's gospel that not only was Rahab delivered from judgment, she was delivered from prostitution. In Israel, she found a husband, a a man named Solomon. In fact, she was the mother of Boaz, and so the great-great-grandmother of King David. And many years later, great King David's great son Jesus came proclaiming the mercy and warning of the justice of God. I thought of a bunch of different ways to end the sermon and I could not come up with one better than this. I am going to read a uh, lengthy passage from the Gospel of Luke, starting in Luke 14, and I want you to listen to Jesus' words. We so often carve this section up and read it in chunks, but I want you to listen to the whole thing. 
One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin, begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When a, one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, 
going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your mercy, you tell us that we must belong to you or nothing. For it is only in belonging to you that we are safe. Lord, help us, help us to see and to know when to quit and to entrust ourselves to you. It's in your name that we pray, amen.